Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of this new book interview podcast done in collaboration with the Asian Review of Books and the New Books Network. In this new podcast, we hope to interview both fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. Decoupling is the international relations word of the day, driven by the COVID-19 pandemic and deepening tensions between Beijing and Washington. Places like the United States, Japan, the European Union, and Taiwan are openly considering policies to reduce their reliance on Chinese manufacturing. Our interview today is with Professor Michael Pettis, author of Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. The book has won rave reviews in the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal, with Adam Tews calling it magisterial in the London Review of Books. Michael Pettis is professor of finance in the Guanghua School of Management at Peking University and an expert on the Chinese financial system. Today, Michael and I will discuss how his theory of trade economics differs from the mainstream and how we should understand some of the new economic policies coming out of China today. So, Michael, perhaps as an introduction, how does trade wars how does trade wars understand where trade imbalances come from and how does that differ from how they are normally understood in traditional economics? Well, um, I, I, I won't say that we differ from how they're normally understood in traditional economics, because traditional economics has kept switching back and forth in its understanding of trade. I would argue that there was a time when we had a much better understanding. Uh, um, if you if you read the debates, for example, between uh, John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White during the Bretton Woods uh, negotiations, you can see that they understood trade much better than 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 we seem to. But basically, the the argument, or or rather the difference between our view, and I say our because I co-wrote the book with uh, Matthew Klein, the difference between our view and sort of the mainstream view, is that we don't really see trade imbalances, global trade imbalances, in terms of country units. In other words. Um, it, it, China isn't really running a, 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 a trade surplus with the United States because of Chinese policies aimed at running a trade surplus or, or anything like that. What we argue is that trade imbalances are really a function of imbalances between different sectors within an economy, within both economies. So we argue that the, the the trade imbalances, say, within Europe uh, uh, prior to 2009 or, or the global imbalances today between East Asia and the United States um, really function because of uh, the distribution, distortions in the distribution of income in both the surplus and the uh, and the deficit countries. And, and to be more specific, um, uh, uh, why does China run a large trade surplus? Uh, if you run a trade surplus, of course, by definition, that means uh, your savings exceed your investment. Uh, technically, that's a current account surplus, but we can call it a trade surplus because the argument is basically the same. Um, so countries run trade surpluses because they have high savings rates. Why do they have high savings rates? Well, the the, the typical uh, uh, answer is because these are countries in which there is a culture that that is oriented towards thrift. 
And what we argue in our book is that that's pretty much nonsense. There, there really isn't such a thing. And more importantly, the reason a country like China has a very high savings rate, which is the same thing as saying it has a very low consumption rate, GDP is savings plus consumption, is largely because ordinary Chinese people, uh, households, receive one of the lowest shares of GDP of any country in history. So um, uh, because they are paid such a low share of what they produce, then by definition, they can only consume a low share of what they produce. And as a result, they must save a high share. And that's just another way of saying that they end up producing far more than they can absorb domestically. So they must export the excess savings. And as they export the excess savings, they run the corresponding trade surplus. And the country to which they export the savings, which is mostly the United States, that country must run the corresponding trade deficit. But the point that we would make is that if you look at how this imbalances affects Chinese and Americans, you won't discover that it benefits Chinese and it hurts Americans. What you'll discover is that it benefits certain groups of Chinese and Americans, um, uh, uh, the business elites, uh, particularly the financial elites and the banking system. And it hurts certain groups of Chinese and Americans, which are basically workers, uh, middle class savers, small businesses, farmers, etc. So I think what's what 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 most people have noticed as new in our book, and again, I, I don't think this is new. People were talking about this a hundred years ago, um, but what people argue is new in our book is that we locate the conflict in terms of economic sectors, or or to be more pr provocative, in terms of classes. Right. So it, it my re if I, when I read the book, the thing that struck me as as you said, was it's the notion that persistent trade imbalances are caused by imbalances within countries. So imbalances, economic inequality, income inequality within China or within the United States. Um, there were a number of things in your answer that 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 piqued my interest. Um, for example, your your notion of, of thrift, and this is something that I noticed in the two case studies of surplus countries you talk about in your book, China and Germany. Um, Germany's current account surplus is generally seen, I think, to be a product of, I guess, for lack of a better word, national character. You know, the thrifty and industrious Germans work hard, and so therefore they have a current account surplus. Whereas in contrast, China's trade surplus, I think, is is often characterized outside of the West, sorry, outside of China, as perhaps due to government intervention, state support, or or nefarious actions on the part of Chinese actors. Um, but I suppose in to take trade wars or class wars as perspective is that these are in fact both caused by something happening domestically. Uh, yeah, and even in China for a long, long time, um, people were saying, well, of course, China has a high savings rate. It's always had a high savings rate. It's a Confucian uh, country and Confucian cultures value thrift. And of course, it's not true. China hasn't always had a high savings rate. There are times where it's had really low savings rates. And in the 1950s, when, when development economists were trying to explain why East Asian countries were so desperately poor and, and, and seemingly incapable of emerging from poverty, 
one of their responses, of course, was, well, these are Confucian cultures, and, and traditionally Confucian cultures don't value thrift or hard work. So, you know, to me, that's pretty funny because when we don't know what we're talking about, we typically say, we typically come up with cultural explanations. Uh, but these cultural explanations, I think, are not terribly valid. And certainly in the case of both China and Germany, we can point to exactly when the savings rate started rising. And in both cases, it was when the household share of GDP was suppressed, when it started declining. This may be an obvious question, but it's probably worth asking, why are persistent trade imbalances bad? And do they and how do they distort a national economy? Well, they're not bad. One of the things I try to teach my students is that a lot of the, the, the statements we have in economics are not really scientific. I don't think economics is a science. Uh, I think they're more ideological. And the right way to ask the question is not whether deficits are bad or not bad, but rather what are the conditions under which deficits are good for growth and what are the conditions under which deficits are bad for growth? And I think the answer is really not that complicated. The U.S. ran deficits in the 19th century. Almost every single year of the 19th century, the U.S. ran large deficits. And that was very good for the U.S. It helped it to grow more quickly. Whereas in the last 50 years, the U.S. has run large deficits, and we argue that those deficits have caused the U.S. to grow more slowly or rely more on debt to generate growth. So what's the difference? Well, basically, when you're running a deficit, you're importing foreign savings. Uh, uh, in, in the 19th century, the U.S. as a rapidly developing country had very high investment needs. But as a, uh, 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 as a country with fairly equal distribution of income and uh, lack of faith in the financial system, it had very low savings. So American savings weren't enough to fund American investment, in which case uh, we relied heavily on primarily British and Dutch savings. Uh, as foreign money flowed into the U.S., that allowed U.S. investment rates to be much higher than they would have otherwise, and that allowed the U.S. to grow very quickly. So basically, if you are a developing country in which your investment, you have high investment needs, and they are constrained by your low domestic savings, then you want to import foreign savings. And of course, if you import foreign savings, you must be running a current account deficit. Those two things have to balance. So in that case, a deficit's a good thing. Uh, when is it a bad thing? Well, it turns out that um, if you don't need to import foreign savings, in other words, if your desired investment level is more or less equal to your actual investment level and you can fund all of your investment out of domestic savings, then the uh, uh, import of foreign savings doesn't increase investment. And what we show in our book, um, and this is just an accounting identity, it's an iron law. If it doesn't increase investment, then it must reduce savings. And the way it reduces savings, there are a bunch of ways they do so, but basically they all boil down into three different ways of reducing savings. One way is to increase uh, unemployment, which reduces savings. Uh, the other way is to increase household debt. And the third way is to increase uh, the fiscal deficit. 
so um, if if you are a rapidly developing country whose investment needs are constrained by the lack of savings, then a deficit allows you to grow more quickly. If you are an advanced economy whose investment needs are not constrained by the lack of savings, and that's certainly the case in the U.S. and in any advanced economy today where uh, there's tons of savings, companies sit on huge hordes of capital and they don't know what to do with it, interest rates are at all-time lows, in that case, running a deficit means either more unemployment or more household or government debt. So that's when a deficit's a bad thing. By the way, one of the things that should really make us uh, suspicious about the naturalness of deficits is that in classic trade theory, persistent large deficits and persistent large surpluses are impossible, except under very specific circumstances. It is possible for a, a rapidly developing country like the United States in the 19th century to run small persistent deficits. Um, and then the other side, if they run small persistent deficits, then uh, advanced countries can run small persistent surpluses. But otherwise, it's not possible because the surpluses and the deficits are self-correcting. Um, and yet, if you look at the distribution of imbalances in the world today, you'll see that certain countries that have very similar financial markets, and this is not an accident, uh, that is the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, have been running almost persistent deficits since the late 1970s. So 50 years of large persistent deficits which we are told in, in, in trade theory is not really possible, and yet it's happened. And, and that, I would argue, is one of the reasons we should immediately recognize that there is a problem with the global imbalances. They're not natural. They must be created by distortions either in the surplus country or in the deficit country. And, uh, and it turns out that, yes, that's exactly the case. They're created by distortions in the distribution of income in the surplus countries. I'd, I'd like to drill into this a little bit um, because the third the, the, the third country um, you and Klein analyze in trade wars is the United States, which you note has all the characteristics of a of a surplus country where savings are constrained, domestic consumption is is constrained um, due to cut welfare, low government spending, um, a sluggish economy, and so on. Yet. The United States continues to have a persistent trade deficit, and the book proposes that the reason for that is the United States is an open financial system and the U.S. dollar status as the world's reserve currency. Um, I think this is a point you probably mentioned uh, quite recently in foreign policy in your recent article, Global Capital is the Tail That Wags the U.S. Economic Dog. Um, I, I was wondering if you could describe a bit more um, talk a bit more about the United States and, and what about its structure has led it to be this kind of persistent, uh, persistent deficit country. Yes, when you look at the U.S., you see a number of characteristics which which would make you think it's obviously a surplus country. First of all, it's the it's uh, it's the technologically most advanced country in the world, so therefore it should be exporting technology. Um, and it, and it would do that through the export of capital. Secondly, it has a very high level of income inequality. 
And typically, income inequality pushes up the savings rate, right? If you take $100 from an ordinary person and give it to a rich person, the ordinary person will have to reduce his spending by, who knows, $80, $90, The rich person won't increase his spending by that amount. He might not increase his spending at all. So as a result, uh, transferring income from uh, ordinary or poor people to the rich people automatically pushes up what economists call the ex-ante savings rate. So because of high levels of income and inequality, we should have extremely high savings in the U.S., uh, that's what happens in Germany. After 2003, you saw a huge increase in income inequality. Actually, before that, but in 2003, you had the Hartz reforms, the labor reforms. Um, and as a result, the German savings rate soared, not because German people saved more money, but because there was a transfer of wealth from German workers to German businesses. And the savings rate soared, and Germany ended up exporting all of those savings. Now, why doesn't the same thing happen in the United States? You have even higher levels of income inequality. And so therefore, there should be an enormous amount of savings that Americans export. And what we argue is because the U.S. as a completely open financial system with very well-governed financial markets has no control over its uh, capital account. And, and that's why I brought up, by the way, the example of the United Kingdom, uh, Canada, and Australia. They're all very similar. They have completely open capital accounts, very well-structured, flexible, and well-governed financial markets. And as a result, in a world of excess capital, uh, people are looking, investors are looking for a place to park that excess capital. They should be sending it to developing countries who need it, but very little of it goes to developing countries. So contrary to all of trade theory, most of the money, most of the excess savings in the world is directed to the most advanced economies in the world, the U.S., the U.K., etc. Um, and so what that means is that the U.S. can never uh, be a net exporter of savings. It is always a net importer of savings, uh, not because it chooses to but simply because of the rest of the world chooses to park roughly half of their excess savings in the United States. And, and, and of what's left, half of it goes into the UK and, and, and these other countries. Uh, so the US capital account is not determined domestically. Now this comes as a shock to a lot of people, uh, not just Americans, but also non-Americans who find it very hard to believe that that you know the US isn't the source of, 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 of everything that happens in the world. On the contrary, the US cannot control its capital account because it's completely open. And as a result, it cannot control its savings rate. This is the really shocking thing for a lot of people. But it follows logically. Remember, if you export $100 into the U.S., uh, automatically the U.S. will run a, a, a capital account surplus of $100 by definition. It must run a current account deficit of $100. And so the question is, how does that happen? What is the adjustment that takes place in the United States? Well, if the US were a developing country, again, that $100 that you sent to the US would somehow show up in higher investment. You know, you could invest yourself or you could buy an apartment and the person who sold the apartment could invest, whatever. 
but somehow that will show up in higher investment. But because the U.S. isn't savings constrained, it doesn't cause investment to go up. As, as I said earlier, American companies are sitting on huge pools of cash, which they find no productive use for. Uh, interest rates are at an all-time low. The, the world is flooded with liquidity. So any investment that an American wants to do, uh, he or she will have already done. So your export of $100 into the U.S. will not cause Americans to increase their investment. But the balance of payments arithmetic is very strict here. If investment doesn't go up, savings must go down. And how does savings go down? There are, again, as I said, there are many ways this can happen. It can happen through the banking system. It can happen through a wealth effect. It can happen through the currency but ultimately, American savings will go down either because that inflow causes unemployment to go up. And remember, unemployed workers have a negative savings rate. So savings goes down if you fire workers or if the if Washington doesn't want unemployment to go up, uh, it could increase the fiscal deficit. Uh, so U.S. debt will go up or the Fed could uh, loosen monetary conditions to encourage additional borrowing on the part of households. Uh, and of course, debt is negative savings. So the point that we make in the book, which I think a lot of people found really, really shocking, is that as long as the US has an open capital market and has a well-governed capital market that people want to use to dump excess savings, then the U.S. has absolutely no control over either its capital account or its domestic savings rate. The domestic savings rate is a residual. It's a function of the net inflows into the U.S. So this would suggest then that the answer is some form of capital controls. Yes, well, the best answer and the answer that uh, my co-author Matt Klein prefers is a new Bretton Woods in which uh, we get together, either everybody or like-minded countries, and we agree to a new set of rules. And one of the rules, and remember, this is what Keynes argued back in Bretton Woods. His argument was rejected by Harry Dexter White, but Keynes argued that imbalances are uh, as much a problem of the surplus countries as of the deficit countries. And if you force deficit countries to adjust to the imbalances, then you're, put, you're always putting downward pressure on demand. So what he argued is that surplus countries should be forced into the adjustment because that puts upward pressure on demand. So we could presumably come to some sort of new Bretton Woods agreements where we agree that countries that have deficient domestic demand are not allowed to resolve them by running huge persistent surpluses, but must resolve them by increasing domestic demand redistributing wealth downwards or increasing investment. Uh, now, I'm a little bit more cynical than, uh, than uh, uh, Matthew is, uh, and I think that while that is definitely the best solution, it's also the least likely. Uh, remember, Bretton Woods occurred under really special circumstances. Basically, the United States represented half of all global manufacturing. It was the only important country that wasn't destroyed by war. In fact, it came out of the war stronger than ever. So it was able to force through this agreement and implement the agreement. I don't think anyone can do that today. So I would argue the next best solution, and it'll be a painful solution for much of the world, 
It's for the U.S. to stop allowing uh, uh, unfettered capital flows into the economy because those force negative adjustments, adverse adjustments on the U.S. economy. We should go back to the days, and it's one of the things that both Harry Dexter White and John Maynard Keynes agreed upon, we should go back to the days where we don't trust um, unfettered flows of international capital because they're not driven by productive investment. They're typically driven by other things. And these other things have uh, adverse uh, consequences on the domestic economies. So yes, capital controls, I suspect, is the answer to which we are all eventually going to go. Um, so you, you've talked about these are the policies that are that that um, constrain domestic consumption, increase savings, um, or I guess or or the inverse in the United States um, to to encourage a, a persistent trade deficit. Um, these are policies driven by the interests of I think like big business, um, elite sectors of the economy, and so on. Um, that's been, a, I think, a long-standing critique of globalization as a phenomenon driven by by big business. It's a strain of argument you see in, say, the U.S. Democratic Party's traditional language on trade or the protests against the World Trade Organization. How does your argument in trade wars, um, I guess, work alongside that long-standing critique of, of globalization? Well, I think... I, I think uh, you know the the critique of globalization is pretty uh, is pretty mixed. There are a lot of different criticisms of globalization. I would say that um, we follow very closely um, uh, uh, the work of uh, Danny Roderick over at Harvard. Uh, uh, Danny many years ago uh, wrote a piece in which he argued that uh, there is a kind of trilemma that countries face, especially uh, liberal democracies, and that is. They can either choose more global integration or they can choose more control over their domestic economies. Uh, more of one means less of the other. And his argument back then was it seems like globalization is inevitable, so we're simply going to have to get used to the idea that we can no longer control our domestic economies, we can no longer control uh, 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 income inequality, uh, all of these issues, international competitiveness. And then a few years later, he said, you, you know, I made a mistake looking at Trump, looking at Brexit, looking at all the things around the world. It's very clear that there is a limit to the amount of domestic control that we are willing to give up. And so what we're going to see is as countries regain control over their domestic economies, uh, we are necessarily going to see a reversal of global integration, a reversal of, of globalization. And I would argue that that's that I think that's where we are. See, one of the problems is that in this globalized world where frictional costs of moving production are almost zero, um, how do you compete? What is international competitiveness? The high road to international competitiveness is to invest in increasing domestic productivity. Um, the low road is just to lower wages. And what we found is that it's been much easier in this hyper-globalized world for countries to compete by effectively lowering wages. That's what Germany did uh, after 2003. That's what the Chinese have done since the 1990s. And there are many ways to lower wages. And I don't just mean lower wages in absolute sense. 
I mean lower wages relative to productivity, because many people are shocked when you talk about low wages in Germany because they say German wages are very high. Yeah, German wages are roughly the same as British wages, but German workers are about a quarter times again more productive than British workers. So that means German wages are low relative to productivity. And that's the problem. You can do that through wages. You can do that by depreciating your currency. You can do that by undermining the uh, social net, uh, social safety net. You can you can even do that through environmental degradation. People don't realize it, but dumping chemicals in the nearby river is a way of boosting profits at the expense of household income, because of course they have to spend more on on health, etc. Um, so all of these things are the natural outcome of international competitiveness. I compete by directly or indirectly lowering the wages of my workers, and that allows me to grow more quickly at your expense. So you have to compete in the same way. And I think it's not a, a coincidence that when we really started to see it, unfettered flow of international capital in the late 70s and early 80s, and it's not a coincidence that that's generally when the beginning of this huge rise in income inequality started. Now, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. It's been very, very easy for uh, for businesses to negotiate with their workers and say, look, we'd love to pay you more money, but we can't. And if you ask for more money, then we'll, we'll, we'll be forced to open our, our, our facilities abroad where we can get advantage of lower wages relative to, to productivity. It's a very powerful argument, and it's not totally self-serving. It's true. In this global environment, if my competitors compete by reducing their wages, I have no choice but to match them, to put downward pressure on my own wages. And I think that's one of the problems in a globalized world, this whole this whole way of achieving competitiveness. And, and I think uh, politically, uh, we sort of reached our, our limit. I think uh, I think we're now going to see a reversal of that process. In fact, we have been seeing a reversal of that process. Um, this may be a, a good time to pivot away from the book and towards perhaps some of the new uh, policies being discussed in China at the moment. And so I'd like to get your opinions on on a few developments in Chinese economic policy, perhaps in the context of trade wars and the in the context of uh, your book, Trade Wars or Class Wars, and you know, financial flows and trade flows. First, um, China recently announced a new strategy, I think called the dual circulation strategy, which I believe is meant to shift the economy more towards domestic consumption. Of course, Beijing has suggested this transition many times in the past decades. Um, why has China struggled to make this transition, and do you think this time will be any different? Well, it's important to understand what the problem is. So when, when the reforms and opening up began, China was in a very special uh, set of circumstances. It had reasonably good institutions in the sense that it was fairly educated. Um, the uh, um, uh, the population was quite healthy. It had um, even political institutions were quite stable. Um, but after 50 years of, of uh, uh, anti-Japanese war and then civil war and then Maoism, it was one of the most underinvested countries in the world for its level of development. It had 
no bridges, no subways, no highways. It had four commercial airports. It was uh, no manufacturing facilities, etc. It was a mess. So in that case, what China needed above all was massive amounts of investment. Now, how do you fund that investment? Uh, you can borrow abroad, but that's really, really risky. Uh, or you can push up the domestic savings rate. And what China did, and they didn't invent this model. Many countries have followed this model. They put into place a series of, po uh, of policies that basically transferred household income. It, 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 it taxed household income, mostly through hidden taxes, um, like an undervalued currency or very low interest rates. And it used that household income to subsidize rapid growth. Um, so... During this time, China forced up its savings rate to the highest rate in history, and it used that savings to fund the highest investment rate in history. And during this period, I would say basically from the 1980s until the early 2000s, you'll notice China really wasn't running large trade surpluses, even though it had the highest savings rate in the world. And that's because that savings was all pouring into investment. Now, the problem is that when you, have, when you have investment growing so quickly for such a long period of time, you rapidly close the gap between the amount of investment you can optimally absorb and the amount of investment you actually have. And the gap closed, I would argue, probably in the late 90s or early part of the last decade. After that, you have to switch your model. And, and this is not just a China problem. At least two dozen countries followed this uh, uh, this model and achieved uh, investment growth miracles, and then they all ran into the same problem. You have to switch your model because once you filled up on the amount of investment you can productively absorb, then additional investment uh, uh, is non-productive. And as a result, the, the uh, uh, debt was always growing, but for many years, GDP was growing as fast as the debt. So the debt burden was flat. But once you start borrowing money to invest non-productively, then debt automatically starts growing much faster than GDP. And every country that followed this model had that problem and ran into a debt problem. How do you resolve it? Well, you ideally, you find new areas of investment that are productive. And that's what everyone says they'll do at first, and no one ever does it. And, and we can get into a whole discussion of why that happens. But the point is, it doesn't happen. It's very difficult to switch. Um, so what you then need to do is to reduce investment. If investment is non-productive, it's generating economic activity, but it's generating even more debt, and it's not generating wealth. It's generating fake wealth, what Galbraith used to call the, the bezel. Um, now, uh, if you reduce investment, the problem is consumption is such a low share of, uh, of, of growth that if you reduce investment, growth stops unless you allow your, your trade surplus to explode. And that's exactly what happened. After 2003, the Chinese trade surplus exploded um, and it became the highest trade surplus in the world and perhaps the second highest in history as a share of global GDP. Um, but of course, that means the rest of the world has to absorb your deficient, uh, uh, your, your domestic demand deficiency, and, and that can only go on for a while, and it did until the global crisis of 2008, 2009. 
And that's when you run into the problem that you can't rely on all of this investment because it's causing debt to surge. Um, you can't rely on a huge trade surplus because as China, you're way too big. So you must grow domestic consumption. The, the, the consumption share of GDP must grow in order for you to bring the investment share down because the trade surplus can't make up the difference. Now, how do you get the consumption share of, uh, of GDP to grow? Well, you do the reverse of what caused the consumption share to collapse, what caused the saving share to grow. And that is rather than give households a smaller and smaller share of GDP, a smaller and smaller share of what they produce, you have to give them a larger and larger share of what they produce. And as um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Hirschman told us, Albert Hirschman, back in the 60s and 70s, this is a political problem. Because for many years, China was growing at 10%, and the households were doing quite well, even though their share was contracting. They were growing at around 7%, which is pretty damn good. But of course, if China's growing at 10 and Chinese households are growing at 7, somebody is growing really, really rapidly, and that was the Chinese elites and, and local government assets, etc. Now, to reverse that, A, China is going to grow much more slowly, currently at around 6% before COVID, but the real growth rate in China is probably below that. The problem is that now we want households to grow more quickly than that, which means by definition that those groups that benefited disproportionately from 30 years of rapid growth must now pay a disproportionate share of the cost of the slowdown. They must grow even more slowly than GDP, which means basically at a zero growth rate. Well, arithmetically, this is all really straightforward. There's nothing complicated about it. It's a political problem. Because now you've got to force these groups, these uh, political elites that benefited disproportionately from the old growth model, and you must switch the model and make them pay disproportionately for the cost of switching the model. And not surprisingly, they're not eager to do that. Back in 2007, uh, then Premier Wen Jiabao gave a very famous speech in which he acknowledged the problem and said, top priority of Beijing will be to rebalance uh, uh, the economy. And of course, it didn't happen. The imbalances actually got worse for the next five years. But it was during that time that we first heard of the so-called vested interests in the Chinese press. Uh, they suddenly began attacking these groups that they referred to as the vested interests. And this isn't a surprise. As they tried to begin this rebalancing process, they found tremendous opposition from the so-called vested interests within China. So... Has that problem been resolved? You, you know, you're absolutely right when you say uh, dual circulation is really rebalancing in a different name. Uh, uh, have they solved the problem? Well, <clears throat> perhaps they have. Since the uh, Wen Jiabao pr premiership under Hu Jintao, there's been a tremendous um, um, a recentralization of political power within China, which I've always argued is, is necessary if you're going to overcome the so-called vested interests and rebalance growth. So maybe that's what's going to happen. We don't really know. Uh, several times now they've announced, you know, this time we really mean it and nothing happened. And so now they're telling us again, but this time we really mean it. Well, we'll see. But the trick is, 
you have to see the household share of GDP grow while somebody's share, which is really the local uh, uh, and provincial elites and governments, you have to see their share contract. And once we see that, then we can say that China is truly rebalancing. But until then, it's just uh, it's just a theory, a, a strategy that, that, that they haven't been able to implement. Okay, so I think that's probably the last question. I think as a last question before we before we wrap up, um, I'd like to ask. So trade imbalances are now a common topic in political discourse all over the world. Um, if you're not an economist or a policymaker, how should you think about trade imbalances and trade policy? And say, if you had to make a political choice in the next you know few months, what kind of policy platform should you look for regarding trade? Well, I think um, I, I think the key issue is really for the U.S. because the U.S. is in the position of, of absorbing roughly half of the global trade imbalances. In fact, in recent months, it's probably a lot more than half. Almost every country saw its imbalance contract, with the big exception being China. Its surplus has exploded, and the U.S. Its deficit has exploded. So I think this is really a problem for the U.S. to resolve. It will be painful for the surplus countries, but basically the U.S. has to take steps um, to reduce its role in absorbing global imbalances. And I would argue you can't do that with tariffs or with uh, limitations on trade. The way to do that is to focus on the capital account. Um, as, as, as we discussed at the beginning of this interview, it's really the capital account that drives the imbalances and, and the U.S. has to take steps towards controlling the capital account. Okay, so thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael Pettis, for, for talking about your latest book, Trade Wars or Class Wars. Um, I guess quickly, is there any... is where can people follow uh, your writings and your analysis? And is there any future work you'd like to you'd like to, you know, quickly plug or talk about now? Well, I I do a lot of writing for uh, the Carnegie Endowment, the Washington think tank, and so I have a a, a blog on their site. Uh, I'm very active in Twitter um, at Michael X Pettis for anybody who's interested. And I'm currently working uh, on a book in in which I'm going to try to argue that um, economics focuses only on the asset side of the economy, that is mainstream economics. And what we really need to uh, do is bring a balance sheet approach, and, and you know, which includes understanding debt, something economists have a very poor understanding of. Uh, but that's probably going to take a few more years before that comes out. Well, I look forward to reading it. Um... So that, that about wraps up our interview. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. And you can follow the Asian Review of Books on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's Book Reviews, plural, Asia. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Uh, thank you again, Michael, for joining me today. Thank you. And goodbye, and thank you for listening.